Nothing brings people together like La Ventanita, the walk-up windows where Miami meets to drink Cuban coffee and swap stories. I'm Carlos Frias, the Miami Herald food editor. At La Ventanita, we'll talk with some of the world's best chefs to get a window into their lives while sharing some strong Cuban coffee and traditional Cuban snacks, pastelitos and croquetas. Electricity started to pulse through me and I could just see my hands on the side of the Ferris wheel. They wouldn't come off from her. Norman Van Aken invented the term fusion cuisine, yet he grew up in the Midwest with no formal culinary training. He was simply an avid reader, devouring everything from Dostoevsky to James Joyce. He hitchhiked his way to Florida as a traveling carnival worker and field hand until he wound up in Key West. There, he fell in love with cooking and the flavors of the Americas, and he soon became one of the great innovators in American cuisine. We sat down at his Miami restaurant, Three, with Cuban coffee, pastelitos, and croquetas. This was one of my earliest falling in love parts of Key West was going to the little windows and having my first uh, experiences with Cuban, largely Cuban food. And it was a, a little, I didn't know the word. Right. I mean, I just know that, like, that's cool. You just walk up there and there's a window and there's people inside and you can get little snacks and right. on your way back from the beach or while you're doing your laundry. And, and, and I love that, that you got your start in Key West after coming from such a very Midwest place. You were born in which part of Illinois? Almost Wisconsin, about 15 miles south of the Wisconsin border in um, a town called Libertyville, because that's where the closest hospital was. Right. What brought you, a, uh, a kid from the Midwest, down to, to, to Key West, of all places, like the zaniest, craziest, free-form place of, in like the U.S., I think? It is, uh, yeah. O- largest open-air sanitarium. Um, <laughs> I, my mom and dad, when they were together, which wasn't for long, but when they were together, uh, every Christmas they would... Um, load us up, get on the Delta jet, and we'd come down to Miami Beach and have uh, 10 glorious days in the sun during the Christmas vacation. And it just got into my heart and my mind, my soul, and I, you know, my, the, the magic of Florida, the magic of the ocean, the sunlight, the palm trees, the, the smell of suntan lotion, swimming in the pool at the hotel and being given a quarter and being able to go to the ice cream machine and to have a nutty buddy for breakfast and all that freedom that I had failed. I, I wrapped it in my head about Florida. Then, um, Did you have brothers and sisters? Or mm-hmm. just yeah, I had uh, a sister on each age side of me, an older sister and a younger sister, and, a, and a, a brother who was so much kind of older enough to me where he wasn't part of that really, except for maybe in the very, very beginning when I was an infant. But by that time he was already 19 and on his own. But um, then came, you know, the usual High school, grade school morphs into high school. High school morphs into some college. This was all, though, during the period of time during the Vietnam War. And watching the war on the news and having people, you know, killed that were from our neighborhood. And the um, draft was on. And my consciousness was, like, not agreeing with the politics of the time. And then came... Uh, other things that included, you know, Watergate and all of that. And I was very, very much in a, um, a dark place, a sad place in a way, you know, a place where I felt totally dislocated about where I, what, what I was doing. I mean, I, I didn't, I had not yet worked in a restaurant. I only thought about writing or something like that as a way to make a living, but I was almost too 
worried about the rejection of what it would mean not to have a manuscript accepted. Hmm. Uh, played a little bit in bands, but I worked more like jobs like um, hot tar roofer, um, factory work, uh, different, three different kinds of factory work. Um, I, I mowed lawns on a golf course one summer. I worked as a uh, carnival worker one summer. Carney, you uh, working as a Carney? That's, uh, that's an yeah. interesting image. I did. I, I worked. Uh, I started on the merry-go-round and moved up to uh, the Total World. <laughs> that's like starting at the. Yeah. What's like the, what's an that's, intro station? It's like Carmanger, and then you work the grill, then you work up to saute, and then saute. Saute, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, it was merry-go-round, then the Ferris wheel, and then the Tilt World. But I had a, an accident one night where I was trying to uh, move one of the carts on the uh, Ferris wheel, so a truck could get through so we could break the Ferris wheel down and move to the next town. And um, this, like, you know, where you put your feet in a Ferris wheel? Right. Well, that thing was just a few inches in the way of this truck getting through. And so I said, that's no problem. I was a gymnast in high school, so I just climbed up the side of the Ferris oh wheel wheel. God. And I got about, you know, higher than the roof line here, up in the air, holding on to the, the wheel of the Ferris wheel. And then I took my foot to push the cart, the, the, the thing back would hold your feet. And I connected the Ferris wheel because it wasn't grounded. Oh, my so God. So the electricity started to pulse through me. And I could just see my hands on the side of the Ferris wheel. Just, they wouldn't come off forever. And I was like... You were a human resistor. I was, I was not passive. But I was, <laughs> I, it's so weird because your brain is electrically impulsed. And so I was thinking, I'm in hell. i got to get out of hell. And I, then I kicked up my feet right by my hands, and I pushed myself off the Ferris wheel that way. But now I'm coming out of, off the Ferris wheel. In free fall. Free fall. And, uh, but my back hit this guy wire and slowed me just a little, and then this uh, man from Mexico caught my head before I hit the asphalt. Oh and God. I just laid there, like, trembling and thinking, i got to find something else to do for work. This, these things aren't working out. Good way to keep ah. this going. Do you want a little Cuban coffee? I, of course. So I had a job as a hot tar roofer, and um, and one day, the uh, one afternoon, it was summertime. Thank you. It was summertime. A storm came along. Cheers. Cheers. Big, big rainstorm. Ooh, ooh, yeah, man. And so um, I zipped down the ladder off the roof of the high, this high school where we were working. Started rolling around in the grass, oh celebrating God. the storm and the fact that it was washing the dust and the sticky tar off of us and my out of my hair and all of that and I'm rolling around on the ground and suddenly I hit something like a human form and I'm like look up and it was my boss and he was like we don't need you oh so I um, so I was like for 15 minutes I was like very happy and then I realized since I got in my car and drove away that rent was coming wow and you were I, I had read that 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 experience that travel from the north you actually hitchhiked down yeah. to Florida, yeah, and that was yeah. a real, that, that was an actual journey, not just a physical one, but for you as a person, I would imagine, coming down too. Yeah. Doing those kinds of jobs, the carny, the roof tarring, the <laughs> <laughs> high school gymnast, I'd have never guessed. Yeah, well, it's a time of many transitions and searching, you know, a real longing, real searching. Fortunately, um, reading has always been my salvation. Um, my grandmother came to live with us when I was 10 years old, when my grandfather passed away in New York. And her coming to live with me and my sisters and my mom in our house in the Midwest was like such a spiritual transition 
because of her intellect, not because of some sort of, you know, her trying to inculcate me with a Christian belief. We, we, were, we were Methodists. We were simple Christians in that way. It was easy to go to our church. You know, we sang a lot. We ate cookies at the end. You know? easy, easy Christianity. Easy Christianity. Christianity light. light, yeah. <laughs> but um, she, was, uh, she was a dedicated reader. She loved opera. Her father was um, part of um, vaudeville. He was a, um, like a showbiz agent. He handled clients, including Al Jolson, wow. Buster Keaton. Wow. So she had this whole other world, you know, so much more of a New York world and storytelling. And my sisters, would, we finished dinner usually after my, uh, my grandmother cooked us dinner. My mom was working as a waitress. And so my sisters would usually go off and do whatever they did. And I'd stay there at the table with Mana and uh, talk about the world outside of our little part of it, which was like 250 people. That was your town, it was about 250 people. There was a town on each side of us, so there was, one was 24,000, one was 17,000, but we were in this middle part, and it was, uh, it was a really, you know, lovely place to be, grow up, lakes and trees and hanging out, you know, as a kid, I'd find trees like crazy and would bring books up in the trees with me and read up there. I've never not seen you without a book. You taught yourself reading some of the classics, the, the French cooking classics and such, and... And very varied, right? Thank God, yeah. I mean, thank God that, you know, Nana and my a lady across the street, we called Auntie, but she wasn't a blood auntie. She was next door neighbor Auntie. Who, she was always pushing books and giving me books. And, and fortunately, it was just something I loved. To, I mean, I'd lay on the floor and read the encyclopedia. Just keep reading, reading, reading. It was always there. And then when I started to cook, I had no intention of this being, you know, a career. I didn't know it to be a career. I didn't know anything about um, the chef's life, I didn't know anything about uh, um, cooking colleges, cooking schools. It wasn't in, in my thought process. The people I worked with in those first five years were working class people. They could have been uh, house painters or plumbers. and then Mouftars, carnies. Mm-hmm. Could have been. Yeah, yeah. Um, short order cooking, you know. So it was very much a, a simple thing. But it was really a helpful thing because when you learn to be a short order cook, you learn speed and you learn repetition, and you learn discipline, and you learn that uh, the alarm clock is gonna keep you from being pummeled if you're late, or right. many things like that. And, uh, and then I got to a place in Key West where I was working the pier house, and uh, I first saw people who were younger than me, who were graduating from the Culinary Institute of America, come into there, or were there when I got there, and they knew things I had no knowledge of. And it really kind of got to me that they used terminology that I didn't know what it was. You didn't like to feel out of step. I didn't. I didn't like to feel like, you know, someone could know something that, that it had to do with a type of knowledge that I could avail myself to if I knew how to do it. This is before the internet. And so um, uh, the story has been told before. I apologize to anybody that's heard it before, but I was floored by this guy who was younger than me using this term uh, called Ville Velute. And I was like, how do you know that term, hooker? And he said, well, I just got, you know, I graduated from the CIA. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, fuck you. You know, and he goes, why don't you read? And I'm like, oh, it's no, no, it's really incensed, you know. I do read. I read Dostoevsky, you know. I, I read uh, Charles Dickens. Who do you read? He says, no, I'm talking about cooking. Why don't you read about cooking? And I said, oh, yeah, like who? And he says, well, why don't you read James Beard? I was like, nah, I don't think so. I didn't want to give him the satisfaction that maybe he was going to give me a piece of advice. That day, though, I went uh, to a bookstore on Duval Street in Key West. It was 1978. I don't even know how I had enough money to buy the book, 
but I bought James Beard's Theory and Practice of Good Cooking. And that was, that was my first book. And, and that book really just opened me up. James Beard's work were, I love them so much because they were inclusive of a broad American spirit. Right. Very distinct from anybody else. Um, you know, Julia was fantastic, but Julia was, you know, a Francophile and talking about the beauty and, 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 and the well-deserved beauty of French food. Whereas James Beard was talking about, you know, the great food of Texas or Kentucky or, or New England. Some things in Florida, too. And uh, there was something about that spirit that really spoke to me. Uh, you want to try some pastelitos? As I, we, as we I, didn't want to, I didn't want to break to open the box myself. No, yes. let's do it. So I usually try to go to a different spot. This one, I, I went to Versailles because I figured what this is maybe one of the, the most best-known Miami spots for one of the best-known chefs who's really, really brought so much of attention to, to Miami. Well, so I have a little bit of everything. I bought, I got some guava, I have some cheese, and some meat pastelitos, uh, and also some house croquetas, ham croquetas. But have to reach uh, for the guava right away. Yeah, when you look at that box, what do you think? That box stuffed full of golden pastry. Oh, I'm, this is my weakness, you know, not, not desserts per se, but the combination of pastelitos and a cortadito. Oh, that's my, that's my, that's my weakness. That's right? your weakness? Uh-huh. When you take a bite of that, that guava pastelito, and I heard the little crisp as you bought into, bit into it, what are you getting from that? I love the tang of it. You know, it's not just sweet, like blueberry sweet. Guava has this more, um, you know, there's more, there's more turns on the lock. Mm. But, you know, when you're cracking a safe, you go turn that, turn that lock a few different ways. With guava, you get this sort of combination of flavors that are traveling, that, are, that have that unique Spanish character. And of course, you know, the crunchy, warm, pastelito itself, uh, that's, that's just, I mean, just all that, that laminated pastry, this yep. takes me back to my very, very first days in Key West, but then the continuum of coming up to Miami and, and going to Versailles, and, um, and the various, you know, little places in town that, to me, just speak so enchantingly of the culture that Florida, South Florida has. And your, your gift was in taking those individual things and seeing where the, where the crossover is mm-hmm. between those and creating something new where they meet. Mm-hmm. And like you're the, you're the progenitor of the phrase fusion, fusion cuisine because of all the cultures that you came across in, in Key West in particular. I think being, in, you know, being a person who's outside of a specific culture mm-hmm. gave me the license to be inquisitive and then begin to do crossovers that maybe I would have felt inhibited by had I been specifically, you know, from Puerto Rico or the Dominican Republic or from, this is funny for me to say because the way I look like, you know, a gringo, but, you know, from Haiti or from uh, Cuba. But being, you know, just being in these different places, which I think I was very fortunate that it started in Key West where it was almost more primitive that there, there wasn't such a crush of different things that to absorb. It gave me a little time to slowly absorb the, the uniqueness of what is the difference between or the similarities between, say, Bahamian cuisine and Cuban cuisine. So it gave me those years there to where I was tasting it. And, you know, it's like a musician finding notes. You're going to, or riffs, you go, wow, that was a cool riff. But what if I did it with that? 
You know, what if I applied this French technique with this Spanish technique, with this Latin technique? What if I married um, a classic Bernays, but I added some moho into it? What would that be like? Huh. You know, and so my mind worked in that general way. You know, I, I, I liken it to the musician, the musician's world, you know. You, you compared it to fusion cuisine, the, or the origins of it, to jazz, to really yeah. good jazz. Yes. Well, the term, I believe the term existed in jazz before food. It, certainly in, it was certainly a, a term that was used in science, cold fusion. I remember people talking about that. I just happened to be reading a book um, called On Culture and Cuisine by uh, Jean-Francois Ravel. And reading that book, that laid the foundation for me to come up with this idea of fusion. And then I was asked to write a, make a speech in Santa Fe, and I had written this paper, but I'd only written it for myself. I didn't write it to present it as a speech. I didn't write it to publish it. I just was trying to figure out where I was going, where I wanted to go, why I wanted to go there, how I was going to go there. And I was concerned also that um, the true voice of um, Key West's maternal cuisines were getting washed away by the hybrids um, the Americanization of things to where they were losing a reverence for their own food and I was like saying no stop don't don't let these little joints lose you know their 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 empanadas and, and things like this and have hamburgers and hot dogs and I was concerned about the cruise ships coming in and what that could mean to the culture there were people that are fearful of the idea of fusion you know they felt like it meant anything goes and just like anything else I mean you know for music to succeed it has to it has to meet people in their soul, meet them somewhere in their soul. You know, so there, there are people who do plenty of bad versions of fusion. There are people who do plenty of bad versions of Italian. Right? Right? It's <laughs> true. So, Absolutely. You know, good food is good food. You don't really have to understand it as being a, having a particular name or appellation of some sort. Um, but for me, it was a, a way of that book and another book called Why We Eat, the, Why we Eat What We Eat by Raymond Sokolov. Those two books, they really became like, you know, my Old Testament, New Testament sort of ways of looking at the way I wanted to cook. Sokolov, you've mentioned more than once. Yeah. That's something I read yeah. recently. Yeah, yeah. And of course, many people, you know, they never have heard of either one of those authors, and that's okay. Um, but I like, for all, of, all the chefs that I've, you know, had come up through the years, I like them to understand why we cook the way we cook. I put a, and, and when I first got to, to uh, Miami Beach, and I was on Ocean Drive at Amano. Um, Amano Mono was your first, was the first restaurant we worked here in actually Miami. Yeah, on the mainland. On the mainland. But then I came to South Beach in 92, and I put a map, Carlos. You know what, you know what you say, the pass? You know, when the, when the pass is in the kitchen, mm -hmm. where the food all goes out? Sure. Well, in our particular kitchen, it's kind of like being in a closet in a way, or, or a shoe, a shoebox kind of an arrangement, yeah. where I was on saute, so I was on the far end, and all the plates had to go down, 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 down to a window at the end. And then the, the servers would pick up from there. Um, I worked saute for a long time and then I worked, I, I finally migrated to be at the pass at the end because I wanted to see all the dishes. But over the pass, I had a map that was a big kind of circle that went from say maybe Tampa, Orlando, and then swept down to all through Central America, South America and the Caribbean. And, that, and I kept saying to my, my team, we don't, you know, we're not from New York. We're not from San Francisco. We're not, we're not from even Chicago, where I'm kind of from. We're here. This is where we live. 
we need to focus on this. This is this is this has been lost. People don't know about this. People think about Florida and they think about, you know, the palm trees or the clubs or the nightlife and I don't know, you know, Miami Ice, that kind of thing. Oh, that's fine. That's good. But we have an incredibly deep food culture to mine here. And we need to do that to differentiate ourselves from the great cooking that does occur in Chicago or New York or San Francisco or Texas. But we have our own voice and our own voice is something um, that I call new world cuisine as far as, see fusion is, happens everywhere. Fusion to me, Carlos, it happened before me. It happened, it happened centuries before me, before, before anybody almost. You know, the first time somebody like borrowed an idea from the other tribe and brought it back to their tribe, that was a kind of fusion. New world cuisine is more um, specific to the geography of this place. Southwestern cuisine is specific to that. Parisian cuisine is specific to that. New world cuisine was pretty much the circle I was placing around where we were, specifically trying to um, latch on and promote the identity of the immigrant populations that had come to make Florida this new place in the world. And it continues to become a new place because every 10 years, we, we, it doesn't happen on the, like the, the anniversary of the 10th year, but it's, you notice, you look back a little bit, wow, now there's a great Vietnamese immigration thing happening more in the Gulf side of Florida, but it's happening here too. Or now things are, are getting more representation. There's more Peruvian restaurants than there used to be. So I'm always just trying to get out there and see what's what and and go, that's interesting to me. And that and I we're just we're, we're doing a new lunch menu. So I was over there working with my team just a little while ago and I'm looking at the menu and I'm like, you know, a lot of good things here, but I wanna know where where's the Latin, where's the Caribbean, where's the Cuban culture here? I wanna make sure that we're representing where all we're the time from. where we're from. Right. Let's not lose that. And I and ironically it's me sometimes telling people who are from a Latin background or a Caribbean background, no, don't, don't wipe that out. You're, you're moving away from your roots, but that's why people come here. Let's move on. Okay. While, we're, while we're talking, he's uh, tearing open a cheese pastelito. I knew it'd be cheese. I could just see it. You're so aware of how immigrant communities and communities, when they meet, how they affect each other. And just about every story that you, that you tell there's always somebody from another country, like, a, like you know, when you fell off this near parapet, <laughs> there was this guy who was working in the carnival, and he's, and he's Mexican, and he's, yeah. and you're, and you're, reminding of, you're reminding us of that, and, mm-hmm. and you're, you're, you were, I think I remember reading somewhere where you said you were so affected during this period where you're traveling down by seeing the cuisine of, like, these Mexican, these guys who were from Mexico that were working in the area that were eating, like, with, uh, like chorizo was in there. Yeah, the the and I'm sure the first time a kid from the Midwest had chorizo, who appreciates food, his head exploded, right? Yeah, I was working as a, uh, I was working pumping concrete uh, in the fields of Kansas. Um, pit silos, they're called. And they're, and, and they're like storage areas for the immense feeding uh, of the cattle. Um, that's, that's what I had taken this quick job to do. And so that's where I was working. And this was uh, around 71. And yeah, the, the laborers shared their meals with me from, from Mexico. And they had even, they were still warm. The, the wives had packed their, their lunches in a way that things were tight in the, in the aluminum foil to where when we take this break around 10 a.m., 
it was still like warm and the cheese was melting, the chorizo was warm. And we would just sit there with this astonishing level of hunger because we've been working with, I mean, heavy labor. Sure. Tough labor for a few hours all through that. And I think where your whole body's humming for hours afterwards. Throbbing, throbbing. And, you're, and the sweat is just coming out of your shoes. I mean, it's just crazy. But, um, you know, my mother, though, was the, was the, the worker in the restaurants. And so she would oftentimes bring somebody back home that was a friend of hers in the restaurant, including one man who was from Japan that totally affected me as a chef. If anybody ever asked me if I had a chef mentor, he's the guy. Yeah. Because your mom was a waitress, but she also worked, she was around this, this cooking lifestyle. As she, as she became old, a little older, she went from waitress to hostess, hostess to manager. And so she was, she ascended in the restaurant world in that particular way. Um, so but she brought she this gentleman a, into your life. Yeah. Well, what's and, his name and what's his... What's his his name is, was Tokyo Suyahara. And uh, he, was, uh, he was tossed into one of the Isai camps in World War II with his family. And, um, but amazingly poetic man. I first met him when my mother and he were working together at the same inn in uh, Lake Forest, Illinois. And then, um, you know, a few critical years changed and my mom went on to do something else. Um, she actually got married. And, uh, and I needed a job and I applied to the same place that she used to work at. In the interim, Toki had got, his nickname was Toki. Toki had gotten stomach cancer and he was dying, but they revered him at the end, so they let him keep a job in the kitchen while another person became the chef. I came in, they hired me despite my looks, despite my hair, because I wrote Toki's name on my application that day, and they didn't, they didn't know what to think of that. But um, so they hired me, I started at noon, and worked between, let's say, noon and got, the, got through the majority of the dinner shift. But this was the kind of restaurant back in this day, this was not completely uncommon, where men worked, mostly men, worked split shifts. And they would come in at 10 o'clock in the morning and then leave around 2.30, go stay in, in like a bunkhouse where they lived, and then come back at like 5.30, 5 o'clock, and then work the second shift. So they worked double shifts five days a week. Wow. A lot of hours. Yeah. And, uh, but Toki and I would have the daytime, the afternoon kind of the quiet. And it was a really romantically, uh, it's just a special period of my life because we'd, he'd make tea um, and then some like stir fry or something like that. And we'd tell, he'd tell me about the Orient and different ingredients and his travels and all of these things. And I was sort of swept up in this the imagination of what it would have meant to have been where he was talking about. One day he went out into the, uh, the yard and he picked dandelion leaves and I thought, why is he trimming the yard? Don't they have guys to do that? And he came back and he made a little stir fry of dandelions, you know, he was a forager too. Oh my God. So, you know, you can always find, if you look and if you're receptive to you can always find somehow in people their reverence for food. And people in different cultures have really affected you. Talk to me about that line between chef and cook. Because, uh, you know, guys will go to the CIA and they're 21 years old and they're like, I'm a chef. And, but your coming up was, was you learned and you learned through the art of reading and then reading and applying that into doing. And then, and, you know, became this, have become this very respected figure. How did you traverse that? And do you have any hangups about it? Like, like you know, these, these you know, like, oh, I'm not a CIA graduate or what have you and, and all that. 
because Bourdain, I'm, the reason I'm talking is because I'm thinking about Bourdain. I'm just reading his book now. Uh, Kitchen Confidential? Kitchen Confidential. And it was the, the, re, the, re, the last reissue edition where he yeah. addressed how many things have yeah. changed. Yeah. And he talks about being, you know, obviously. And you're, like, you're a figure that plays into that, uh, he, or he, he's mentioned you. Yes. In the past, you Yes. And you yes. guys have come to an, you guys came to an accord there. Yeah, Tony and I are, uh, we're, you know, colleagues from different places. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he recognized in me the same thing he experienced himself, which was being part of the world before the, um, you know, the political correctness or the, uh, the star treatment of chefs. I mean, we both came from a period of time well before that, where I was working with people who, like the men in, in that place where they were to split shifts. They lived in a bunkhouse behind the yeah. behind the restaurant. Yeah, there Their was no there was not, no food network. Uh, no. They weren't doing a shoot in between that yeah. in between that sh- uh, break and shifts. They didn't think that they you know they didn't think about themselves having a PR agent. They wouldn't think of themselves being on camera, unless maybe it was you know uh, a lineup or uh, you know at the local jailhouse for something they may have done. So Tony and I laughed about that. That we were fortunate that we kind of like. We're on that shoulder of the days before and then the days now, the right. days in the middle, because there has been this extraordinary transition of what it meant to say to a girlfriend's father, yes, I cook for a living, and have him go, oh, this is not going to end good, you know? <laughs> right, right. Right <laughs> now it's now. like, oh, he's a... Uh... Oh, he, he, he quit medical school, but he's a chef now. You know? it's like, <laughs> great. <laughs> Much better. <laughs> Oh, God. Do you have, um, you, you, tell me about your kids. How old are your kids now? Our son, Justin, uh, is 38 okay. and uh, was born in Key West in 1980. And um, he grew up in the restaurant business. And his, when he was you know, 13, he was busting tables. And, so and your wife is here today. Janet's always around somewhere in a quiet corner doing something, yeah. She's always tested the recipes for the cookbooks. Um, we met in the first place I cooked. She was a waitress. She was in high school. And I was 21 years old. Where was that? Libertyville, Illinois. Wow. She was working. I was asked to work one night, uh, a few hours extra, because there was a party. Mm-hmm. And I had never seen the nighttime girls. You know, the, the daytime were the ladies, and they were in their 40s and 50s, generally speaking. And then this night, they asked me to stick around and, you know, help out. These three girls came in, you know, and they were all like 17 years old. And I was like, oh. Sign me up for this shift. Yeah. <laughs> this is different. And one of them was her. And so we uh, hit it off pretty quickly. And um, so we, we lived together four years before we got married. My mother finally was like, you know, hey, can I have children someday? You, know, you want to get married? You know, uh, and my mom loved her and they loved each other. And so we got married and then we, uh, we moved to Key, well, we'd been to Key West already. We, we kind of had this cyclical relationship between Illinois and Key West during mm-hmm. these years. And then uh, we set up and I got the job at Louis Backyard and that kind of really began me on another level with um, where I was in America as a chef. So we dig into something else? Are you feeling a croqueta? Are you feeling a... It's people love these things. I mean, I love how people go and get like a hundred of these things for their parties. I would, I, would be, I would be messing with these things big time. I want to do a Thanksgiving version of this. What would, what, what would you put oh, in it? What would you put in a Thanksgiving sure. mm. I'd do turkey and dressing. Oh, yeah. Wild mushrooms, almonds, maybe some green beans, maybe a little bit of eau de, the cranberry dressing dipping sauce. Oh, okay. You know, you got to have tradition mixed in with your wildness. Right? You appreciate a little bit of that, of mixing of those, well, you yeah. were. Yeah, it's like, you know, worlds. 
it's like taking your grandmother on the dance floor for a spin, you know? You don't want to have, her have a few laughs, but you don't want to scare her. You don't want to kill her. <laughs> you know, that was, that was one of the things that just so knocked me out when I first got to Key West. And I went to a, a place on Duval Street, and I was before I became a cook at all. And uh, my buddies were um, mostly carpenters re helping revive, you know, revitalize Duval Street during the 70s now. Um, and we went to a simple working class uh, Cuban place and um, had, a, had, had a pork chunks, which I always hated that word. Masita's the pork guy. I like that better. That's better. That sounds yeah, a lot, that sounds better, a lot right? more uh, suave. I, I was like looking at the plate and I'm like, wow, this is meat, but there's bananas. And this is meat and there's lime and onion. And then, you know, I looked over at somebody else who knew more than me and I saw them squeezing the lime. And then making sure the, the, the caramelized plantain got in there with the meat, and I'm eating this, and I'm just like, oh my god, this is delicious. This is this is this is speaking directly to me. Right. I loved it. I love the, I love that you know the way it was sort of wrapping around and in between, you know, richness, meatiness, acidity. It kind of blows the mind of a kid from the Midwest where you're used to the packet of uh, potato flakes of uh, mashed yeah. potato flakes getting yeah. ripped open right? yeah yeah you were a blank you were a blank i, I think acidity could have been like maybe mustard and ketchup <laughs> <laughs> well let's see there's one pastelito we haven't tried yet that's the meat one do you feel uh, adventurous yeah man let's rip into it all right so we have this these these fluffy flaky layers and then this little pit of meat of ground meat kind of very compressed in the middle now this one way. you get a little bit more kind of that that fat you know the I get, I get more of a kind of a, I don't want to say greasy, but a, a more presence of the fat. Mm -hmm. Now that might be because, you know, the fat coming out of the ground beef into the dough. Right. But like here, with this guy, the guava one, it, it's just nice and crunchy all the way through. Crunchy the, and sticky. The meat one is much doughier. Doughier. Yeah. But uh, you know, I love that that you can be at a, you can be at a party and you can almost have. A little bit of what you want, like where you're waiting for the main course to come out, right? This is all like uh, pre-gaming for the main course. Is, oh uh, yeah, oh yeah. I, I just love to go to the, you know, the Ventanitas and the little case, and they're warm, you know. Oh, right out of the case. Right out of the case, and then you get, you know, the cortadito, which they, you know, they just are the way they're stirring it so methodically and making sure that the sugar is going in to have that, that sort of liaison that occurs in the little. Um, in the little pitcher. Oh my God! And, and you know, the old days in Key West, they, you know, they were used to using the canned milk. Oh right, the evaporated uh, evaporated uh, milk. Yeah. And, and and even though milk, of course, was available, the old time conks had had grown up with that being coffee, and so something is sort of like central and elementary and primal mm -hmm. as the experience of coffee. After you have that that way, even though you could have real milk or fresh milk, they're like, no, this it, is the way. Because one, it, it does recall whatever memory, whatever food memory they particularly have. And two, it, it's, it is different. It is different to have that rich, creamy, sweet, it's almost a dessert to have when you have like a cortado, a cortadito. Exactly. One thing I wanted to ask you was, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about how you grew up in these times that were very formative to you, where it was politically and uh, politically charged, and we talked a little bit about how it was here. You had the opportunity to cook not too long ago. You, I, you were offered a catering job. It's really what it comes down. You were offering a catering job to cook 
for an event. Uh, it was by St. Jude, but it was held. It was going to be held at Mar-a-Lago, yeah. and it was going to be presided over by the sitting president, by uh, President Trump, and his one of his sons. Mm-hmm. And, and it was important enough to you to, to raise your hand and say, "I just want y'all to know I didn't, I didn't take this." Why, why was that important to you? To me, to take money, to do a cater job, to do a paid gig, doesn't mean that I need to be aligned with a person's politics. I don't usually know the person's politics, but I've I have been very um, saddened by uh, these politics and about how they're they are not the politics of the inclusion of people that have been incredibly helpful to me um, through my life, whether that be women or gay or immigrant or you name it. I mean, they're, they're just there are politics that are, to me just. They're so far outside the, the realm of what I feel good about. I didn't want to take the money. Of course, I want to raise money for St. Jude's, and I, and I will. I was just actually offered the opportunity today to do a fundraiser for St. Jude's that um, I'm seeking to get more information about that right now. But to do it at the house, to do it in their house, would have meant there's going to be um, probably almost like the, the standard and ob- obligatory photo sessions. And I just felt like, you know, that would have been that would have been something that I wouldn't have felt right about. I get it that people think I'm wrong not to help St. Jude's. I get that there are people that are slamming me occasionally. It's, many more people are saying you did the right thing, but there are people who don't who who will slam me for not doing it. I would wonder, you know, what they would do if they were in the position and the politics were not their politics. Anyway, it's, you know, I have been blessed many ways, Carlos, to be in the restaurant business because most of it that we do is about the healing of the cultures. But the the beauty of something like, even like something like today, where we can just sit and have a conversation and share food and it's a little bit of a, it's a different, you're you're working in a different space. You're creating a different atmosphere. Of course, yeah. When we can, we can both go, wow, this, you know, this empanada is amazing, or this pastelli is amazing, then we, we may find that we have a little bit different ideological things, but we did enjoy the same food. And if we can do that, then, uh, you know, that's why it's called breaking bread versus breaking bad. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm really pleased that we were able to break bread and not break bad uh, here in your beautiful restaurant. And I appreciate you taking the time. It's been really great to talk to you. Carlos, an absolute pleasure. Hope you've got some coffee left because we've got more for you. You can watch videos of these chefs and read more about their lives at our website. Go to miamiherald.com forward slash ventanita. That's V-E-N-T-A-N-I-T-A. And while you're there, please consider subscribing to the Miami Herald for more of our James Beard award-winning food coverage. La Ventanita was produced by Matias Ochner and me at the Miami Herald. Julio Alvarez mixed the show. Music is by Haim Mazar. Special thanks to Norman Van Aken and the staff at his restaurant in Wynwood, 3, plus Versailles Cuban Restaurant for the Pastelitos. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing and leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. You can reach me directly at cfrias at miamiherald.com. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening.